It's also my pleasure this morning to introduce Daniel to you. Daniel, come on up. Daniel recently joined us at Christ City, at Christ City East Van, for a couple of months now, I think, Daniel. One month. Um, Daniel is a church planting apprentice there. Uh, he is a wonderful preacher, and I do commend him to you this morning. So, Daniel, let me just, let me just pray for you um, before you preach to us this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you um, for Daniel. I thank you for his faithfulness to your word. Lord, for his preparation as he's poured into your word and as he's listened to your still small voice and for what you have for us this morning. Lord, would you keep him faithful? Uh, would you keep his, um, his preaching faithful to your word this morning? Would you keep our hearts soft and supple to receive what you have for us? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank Amen. You. Thank you, Gareth. Thank you, Brant and elders as well for having me feel privileged and honored to be here, Christ City Kids. Uh, yeah, I feel really grateful. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to Psalm 24. Over the course of this summer, we are going to be going through the book of Psalms together. We've been picking Psalms each week based on the Bible reading plan. So we're going to kind of work our way through the book of Psalms. And so again, I just encourage you to join our Bible reading plan if you haven't already. Uh, it's going to be a, just a great time. There's something powerful about not only having God speak to us in his word. God does change us by speaking to us. But there's something powerful about God speaking to a community through his word. And God shaping and, and changing a people as they read the Bible together. So this morning, we are looking at Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is part of a very famous trilogy of psalms. Psalm 22 is about the suffering God. Psalm 23 about the shepherding God. And Psalm 24 about the sovereign God. Psalm 22 is about the cross. Psalm 23 about the crook, and Psalm 24, about the crown. And I think it's that last one, God as crown, that has gone out of vogue in our culture today. We're okay with God as father, friend, helper, but I think we take issue with the God who is Lord, Emperor, and King. See, I think we have a fear of authority. We're, we're fearful that this person in a position of authority will abuse their power, that they'll commodify us and, and use us for their own personal gain, and that there won't be anyone to stand and hold them accountable. And so, I think this fear is right, in a sense. It's right, in the sense that We've seen that society as a whole, the world as a whole, has kind of slowly tried to transform monarchies into democracies. And actually, Christians have often led this charge. However, at the same time, I think we recognize that democracies are medicine and not food. See, it's one thing to take away power from a single sinful individual, but it doesn't altogether make everything perfect and good to then give that power to a society that is equally as sinful and wrong. 
I think it's interesting that in our society, we have this kind of common legend, this story. The story goes something like this. We, we have this great king. And during this king's reign, the, the kingdom experiences prosperity and wealth. The, the crops are, are blossoming. And, and there's just all together this time of peace and, and just joy. And then all of a sudden, something happens. And, and then that king leaves, and, and that kingdom experiences pain and suffering and heartbreak. There's infighting. There's injustice. And so what we need, this legend says, is that king to return. We, we need that good king to come back so that our land can be the way it was supposed to be. We see this in the stories of King Arthur. While King Arthur is on the throne, we have Camelot. If only King Arthur would come back, things would be better. We see this in the stories of Robin Hood. Robin Hood needs to chase away evil King John because what we really need is good King Richard. Then things will be the way we want them to be. We see it in Lord of the Rings. There's this hidden king in the north, and what we need is to him to return back to the throne so that Middle Earth can prosper. We see it in the stories of Lion King. If only the rightful lion would be back on the throne, the savannah would thrive. And so we, we experience this, this tension, right? On, on one hand, we don't want a king. We, we find it dangerous to, to trust in a single individual. And yet at the same time, our hearts actually long for a king. We don't want a king and we want a king. Our hearts long for a king so much so that even if we don't have a proper monarchy, we set up our own kings and queens. We treat celebrities, athletes, or wealthy entrepreneurs as kings and idols. We look for someone to trust and put our hope in. Or we make ourselves kings and queens. So the question is, though, is how is that going for you? See, it's only a matter of time till those miniature kings and queens disappoint us and let us down and fail us or betray us and deceive us. We all want a king. We just want a perfect king. I think Psalm 24 begins to paint a picture of that perfect king. If only this king could return, all will be right. So I want to have us look at three things this morning. The authority of the king, the people of the king, and thirdly, the identity of the king. Firstly, the authority of this king. Verse 1, hear it, it thunders to start. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. In the Hebrew language, the original language here, it actually starts with the word Yahweh, the Lord, God. He's the first thing that we read here. It's those to say, he is above all else. There's nothing over which he does not rule. The earth is his. The world is his. The inhabited world and everything that dwells therein. From great and small 
from the vastest of plans to the minutest of details. Our God is sovereign over all. All power belongs to him. Every force of nature, every 42-degree beam of sunlight, every small disease and infection, it all belongs to him. All people are his. From every tongue to every tribe to every nation, every government is his. Every law belongs to him. Every pleasure and every endorphin that rushes through our body, it belongs to Yahweh. Every dollar, from the largest corporation to the littlest nickel in the tip jar, it belongs to him. Every second of every day, of every age, of every space, Jesus says, it's mine. The reason, he says, that everything belongs to me is because, look at verse 2. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He has authority over all because he's author of it all. He's sovereign because he's creator. And because he's creator, he decides how it works. He decides how it operates and how it's supposed to be used. I remember a little while ago, my four-year-old daughter wanted to have me come and join her in her room and play Lego together. And of course, I'm still like a seven-year-old boy at heart. So I'm like, absolutely, I will come upstairs and play Lego with you. And so I come upstairs and I see this beautiful Disney princess castle that she's built. And she's like, Daddy, you use this one, this little like ship thing. And I was like, perfect. It's going to be a spaceship. And I just start flying around with this thing. I'm like shooting down her Disney princesses. And she's like, Daddy, stop. It's not a spaceship. It's a boat. It's to transport all the Disney princesses with all their creature friends to where they want to go. Did it look like a boat? Absolutely not. Did it look like a spaceship? Probably not either. But her point remains. She created it. She gets to determine how it's used. She determines its purpose. The difference here, obviously, is that God is not a four-year-old making do with a little bit of Lego. He's the Alpha and Omega who creates all things just by the power of his words. He's the infinitely wise God. And so he knows the deepest, darkest properties of every single thing he's created. He knows how it can be used so that it can flourish. Everything belongs to our God because he's the creator. And most importantly, we belong to our God because he's creator. Listen to these words in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19, 5 says this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. When are these words given? They're given after the Exodus, right? Right after God sends frogs and gnats and locusts, 
right after God turns the Nile into blood, right after he sends hail from the sky and covers that sky with darkness, right after he sends Israel through the sea, through the Red Sea, which he parts, right? God says, I can do all of those things because all those things belong to me. And I did all those things so that you can belong to me. In the New Testament, the Bible continues to use creation language to talk about our conversion. The Bible speaks about our conversion as though it is God speaking light into darkness. See, it is actually great news that our God has authority over all. Because that means he can call us out of spiritual darkness. It means he can turn my heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It means that he can help me see his beauty and majesty. It means that he can fix my deepest, darkest sins that only he seems to be able to get at. For him to have all authority means the devil can't say, Daniel, you're mine. He has no equal, and so we can belong to him. My question, Christ City, is do you live like that? Do you live as though Jesus has authority over your life, over every aspect of your life? Does he affect your job and the way you spend your finances? Do you realize that your kids and your spouse don't really belong to you. They're gods. Do you recognize that your time, your recreation, your body, your eyes, your gifts, and your talents, they all belong to God? That's one of the reasons we want to start our days by reading our Bible, so that our minds are oriented and shaped and transformed, and we ask, God, show me how you would have me live today. It's why we pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done, not mine. It's interesting that in Matthew 28, Jesus, right, he's right about to ascend back to be with his father in heaven. And he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then how does he use that authority? He says, go therefore and make disciples. God's authority is meant to not domineer, but to make disciples, to seek and to save the lost. If only this king would come back. Secondly, the people of the king. So the psalmist has just declared the the greatness, the majesty, the transcendent, holy nature of this God. He is unlike us. And so then he asks the question, verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who who shall stand in his holy place? The, The tabernacle, later to be the temple, was located on a hill. Not, not in, it was on Mount Zion. Now, don't think like Cypress Mountain or Grouse Mountain. This is like a, a hill. But it's a hill nonetheless. And so, so you would actually have to ascend the hill to be in the presence of the Lord, to be with God's people worshiping in the tabernacle. But more than just being on the hill, the question asked here is, how do I stand in right, pre- or right standing with my God? How can I be acceptable before him? And so there's actually 
two requirements. Look at verse four. He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, they can be with right or in right standing with God. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. See, see there's, there's two aspects here. There's the horizontal aspect. We have clean hands. We do not swear deceitfully. We, we, we treat other people with dignity. We treat other people as though they're citizens of the king. We don't, we don't use people for our own personal gain. We love on them. We value others. We have a horizontal plane that we need to be in right standing with. And then we also have a vertical plane, right? We, it says they have a pure heart. They do not lift up their soul to what is false. Or in another word, there is empty or idols. We have this undivided, pure attention given to God, the Lord, and the Lord alone is to have our absolute loyalty. There's actually a reason David writes this psalm. This psalm comes uh, in light of the events that took place in 2 Samuel chapter 6. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we find out that the Ark of the Covenant, this sacred gold-plated box that had these gold uh, angels with their wings kind of covering the box had been neglected. This, this was the most precious piece of furniture in the whole world. God said, this is the place that I will meet with you. It was the ark. And this ark had been neglected. It had actually fallen into the hands of the Philistines. And so David realizes that they have forgotten about this box. And so he goes and retrieves it. But he doesn't do it the right way. So he puts it on a cart and they're kind of transporting this box back into Jerusalem, back to the tabernacle. And one of these oxen slips and this man named Uzzah reaches out his hands to to catch the box so that it doesn't fall to the ground. And the moment he touches the box, God strikes him dead. See, there are a few rules that God had put in place to when it came to the Ark of the Covenant. One theologian says, no carts, no looks, and no touch. No carts in the sense that the priests are supposed to carry this box. They, they have poles that they loop through the box and they're supposed to carry them. You don't put it on a cart. Secondly, you don't touch it. Only the Levites and only a special set of Levites can actually carry this box and, and, and no looks. You kind of have to cover it with like a blue U-Haul blanket. And, and so, they're, so they're, they're transporting this thing and, and God strikes us a dead and, and David realizes that he's done it all wrong. He, he, he's afraid. I mean, remember, look, this is David who's wrote this song. It's David, God, man after God's own heart, who then realizes, oh my goodness, I have to remember, I don't approach God on my terms. I approach God on his terms. And what are those requirements? God says you need a pure heart. You need clean hands. And the problem is, is though we are not those things. 
We have not treated others the way we ought to. We've served the creation rather than the creator. We've lived for our own glory and our own name instead of God's glory and his name. And so what then is the solution? How can we stand on the hill of the Lord and be in his presence? Well, look at verse 5. Verse 5 says that he will receive blessing from the Lord. What is that blessing? He says it's righteousness from the God of his salvation. Blessing is something that we receive from God. We receive right standing before him. It's a gift. It's not something we earn. We don't become people of the king through our own power or through our own merit. We become people of the king through seeking him, by longing after him. That's why verse 6 says, such is the generation or the hallmark or the characteristic of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob. That last phrase, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, is better probably translated, who seek thy face, Jacob. Now, the question is, is how come Jacob gets a shout out here? Like, why is Jacob being applauded? If you know Jacob, Jacob is a scoundrel. Like, he's the worst. He, he's a weasel. He, he is re- like the liar of liars in the book of Genesis. He cheated his brother out of his birthright by lying to his father. So, so how come Jacob is applauded here? Well, there's a moment in Jacob's life when he realized that he had no hope. And he's laying down under the stars and he has a dream. God gives him a vision. And the vision is of a ladder. And on that ladder, ascending and descending are God's angels. And in that moment, Jacob realizes that if he is to be in right standing with God, if he will stand before Yahweh, God ultimately has to come down the ladder. God descends to us before we ascend to him. That's why Genesis, uh, John 1.51 says, And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus talking, You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on who? The Son of Man. On Jesus. Jesus is the ladder that allows us to ascend to God. Jesus came down so that we can ascend the hill of the Lord. See, the good news is that Jesus makes us righteousness. He gives us our clean hands and our pure heart. Christ City, the good news is that you don't earn your right standing before God. You don't have to be better. You don't have to pull up your bootstraps and dig a little deeper and try a little harder. The good news is that it's a gift. It's that Jesus came down so that you didn't have to. If only this king would return. Thirdly, we see the identity of the king. So the Ark of the Covenant is making its way up Mount Zion. And they're approaching the tabernacle. What would would later be the temple. And so the psalmist, David, asks, who is this king? So listen to verse 7. He says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. 
Verse 9, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Gates don't have heads. Gates actually didn't go up. One, one preacher says, what's happening here is like beauty and the beast. The, the, the furniture is coming alive. See, this language of gates lifting up their heads is the language of being proud. It's like they're puffing out their chest. There's never been a moment more majestic in their entire existence than there is right now. They have never been so worthy and valuable as they are right now. Why now, though? Why now? Well, verse 8 says, Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Verse 10, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Look, these gates never lifted up their heads like this for David. David was the greatest military king in Israel's history. They never lifted up their heads for him. They never lifted up their heads for little wee Solomon, who'd become the wisest man who ever lived and one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. They didn't lift up their heads for any other man or woman. They lifted up their heads for Yahweh. He alone is worthy of their adoration. No billionaire or athlete or politician is worthy of this type of praise. But Yahweh Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. God is being portrayed here as this warrior king. He's the one who would come and, and defeat Israel's enemies. For this king, animate and inanimate will worship. In God's sovereignty, by his providence, this psalm was read on Sundays. Every Sunday in the Jewish liturgy, Psalm 24 was being read. 1,000 years after it was written, in the time of Jesus, it was being read. On Palm Sunday, it was being read. As Jesus was making his way down the Mount of Olives, about to ascend Mount Zion. In the temple, the rabbis and the priests were singing, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Jesus was coming to lay down his life. Jesus was coming to die. Though he had done nothing wrong, though he and he alone had pure hands and a clean heart, he came down to lay his own life on the cross. He came to defeat the greatest enemies, sin, death, Satan. This king, Jesus, is worthy of our adoration and our praise of our faith and our trust and of our lives. If only this King Jesus would come back, things would be better.
But he does, right? That, that, that's the hope that we have, that, that Jesus will come back. This is why in Revelation 21, we hear these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. There's a new creation going on here. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We're standing in his presence. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be them with them as their God. He will make everything right. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Lift up your heads, Christ city, for this king is coming back. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we bow our knee to you, for you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we confess that we have sought to be our own kings and queens, that we've sought to sit on our own thrones, Lord, when you ought to be there. Father, we pray, please forgive us. Lord, help us to recognize that everything we are belongs to you. You have authority over all. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have made us your people, not by our own merit or works, Lord, but by the goodness, by the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray, would we spend the rest of our days singing and praising the true king, who sits on the throne and who's coming back for us.